Oh, wait, now it's now I can hear myself. Mo? Yeah, hi, hello. Okay, hi, now I can hear yeah. you. Cool. Yay! Yay. <laughs> hi, I'm Rachel Handler, and welcome to Lady Problems, where every Thursday, me and a rotating crew of ladies look at the way that pop culture has treated women in a given week, and it's almost always terribly. This week, I'm here with Hazel Sills. Hello, Hazel. Hi, Rachel. And we are co-hosting the show alongside our very esteemed guest, Mo Ryan, who is Variety's TV critic. Hi, Mo. Hi, how are you? Great. We're so excited to have you. I'm so excited to be on the show. Thanks for having me. So first, we're going to interview Mo about her recent piece about the progress and pitfalls of television's treatment of rape, because we apparently love talking about the way the media depicts rape on this podcast. We love it. We love it. And then we're going to delve into this week's lady problem, which is the fact that everyone on earth is shocked by Teen Vogue's ability to produce cogent political content. And then finally, we're going to answer a lady problem for one of our coworkers. So, Mo, we really loved your piece, uh, especially, like I said, as women who were always talking about rape in the media. Uh, Do you want to summarize what it was about for our listeners who haven't read it? Every female TV critic I know feels like at some point her title should be senior rape correspondent because in TV (laughs) I feel like I've written about it like four times a year for like 10 years. And the weird thing about the piece that I wrote is I felt like it was just restating things I'd said before, but I mean, I'm super glad that it caught on to some degree with people. It seemed like it did. So the piece was basically talking to people in the industry, writers, uh, executive producers, showrunners, executives about why it's so prevalent. And there's really a few colliding factors that kind of bring it into play so much. One is that the majority of showrunners or people in charge of TV shows or the most powerful people at networks or running TV shows are typically heterosexual men. And so um, the way our culture is set up, and I, mean, I don't have to explain this to you, I just, you know, there's so much about how women are seen that is related to their, you know, their value sort of um, of their sexuality, which obviously is not the way women should be valued, but this is something that's, you know, far too common and far too entrenched in our culture. Absolutely. So if you see, you know, men are, men are a part of the culture. I think that one thing that happens is that um, a lot of writers think that they are special snowflakes and nobody else is like <laughs> them. And it's true that, you know, nobody's like any of us. We're all snowflakes. Hooray. But we are all part of the same culture and we're all kind of coming up under the same array of forces and influences. And so what you have is, you know, once again and again and again, um, we have a female character. How can we put her in jeopardy? What's the quickest way to do that? What's the easiest way to do that? Oh, she's going to be assaulted, menaced, sexually, or raped. And so it's just something, it's, it's almost like a shorthand thing where I think mm-hmm. people use it a lot without thinking about it. And that's one thing the piece gets into. Even showrunner, you know, Brian Fuller is a very prominent showrunner, and he said, I just, I banned it from Hannibal because, you know, Hannibal was a show that's willing to discuss all kinds of violence and why people might in, indulge in it or engage in it and how it might reflect aspects of their personas. But he said that that was just a bridge too far for him because, um, if you're a survivor of sexual assault, that's a complicated situation. And I think that that's really the core critique of that. 
you know, to summarize, you know, I don't know, it feels like 10 years of talk about Game of Thrones, <laughs> having written about that, the sexual violence on that show many times, you constantly in your inbox or on Twitter or wherever get this, this pushback, and it's always from dudes. Thanks, dudes. Um, they are always <laughs> saying, um, but what about the fact that women do get raped? And in ye olden times, apparently, rape was very common. And, okay, first of all, I did not realize that you were uh, correspondent on women's affairs in the 15th century, but okay. Uh, also, Westeros is fictional, so that's a thing. Right, like where were the those dragons that, that, that we always talked about in, in the olden times? Yeah, so like there's there's dragons, and you know typically that wasn't a thing, you know, back in the time of Queen Elizabeth the first. So, um, so I really, I mean, Game of Thrones is a show about the cultural ideas of now filtered through this lens of of fantasy and so forth. And I think a lot of it is really good and interesting, but to continually fall back as that is the way to put your female characters in danger. It's really reductive because, you know, as women, we have many experiences. Like we lose jobs, we get our hearts broken, we stub our toes, we, um, you know, get into car accidents, we get into dragon accidents. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's a <laughs> lot of different ways to show peril, but because in our culture, so many of us, even me, of course, like so many of us have been sort of trained to think the worst thing that can happen to a woman short of death is being raped. That there's a lot of loaded and problematic assumptions in that sentence, but it's just it's something that as a narrative, um, you know, one writer compared it to having a, a bomb that would go off in your story, and if that's what you want, that's a quick and easy way to do that. But to be a survivor of sexual assault and rape is a complex situation that should be um, viewed from the viewpoint of the survivor, and mm -hmm. it's not clear at all that we ever need to see someone being assaulted again on television. Because if we went for ten years without seeing it, it would not even make up for like the overuse of it in the last fifty. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so I, absolutely. I guess just to, to my last thing that I'll say, and then I'll shut up. And I really want to hear what you all have to say. Um, <laughs> is that a lot of times? You know, it is a bomb in a story, and it can be a, a very effectively used bomb in a story, a, a very effective device or um, thread in your story. But I think a lot of people think that it's like a Fourth of July sparkler when actually it's a nuclear bomb. You know, mm. that they don't see it as being the complex and challenging multifaceted thing that it is once it's in the story they treat it like oh well the rape that was last week because mm -hmm. it's men it's mostly men right yeah we'll be back with more lady problems after this ad I want to talk about the Game of Thrones scene because that was a huge – I mean, I just remember being on Twitter and everyone was talking about it, that specific scene with Sansa being raped and how it wasn't from her point of view, uh, which you address in your piece too. And I also recapped Game of Thrones. And one of my biggest problems with that show is just the way that it treats women and, and exactly what you're talking about. It uses rape as a plot device. It's a crutch. Um, what was your initial response when you saw that scene? Like were you immediately compelled to write about it? Um, here, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know that I wrote about the Sansa scene. Um, I think I was sort of, um, writing about rape burnout was kind of a thing with me at that moment. And so, um, a lot of other people did. And I think 
I think, here's the weird thing. I think actually Game of Thrones, within the show itself, it's wrestling with what it does with this thing. And I really wish the creators of the show would come out and talk to you all or some other female critic, Linda Holmes at NPR. Like, there's a ton of people that would have a really, would love to have a really substantive and, um, you know, realistic discussion of rape on Game of Thrones. I, th- I think you could do that without being realistic, but I think the show's struggling with it. The show is trying to grapple with it. And I actually think that in their view, shifting the point of view over to, um, to Reek, uh, to Theon, was a way of, well, we're not going to show the graphic rape. We don't need to do that. And so mm-hmm. there's, I think it's, in a way, I feel like I think that they were trying to be respectful of the character's experience but by shifting the point of view over to how does a man feel about rape, as so many people pointed out, that is very, very, um, it's just got a huge, huge problem at the core of it because, again, that's, you know, how is this woman seen through the eyes of a man? Well, the woman is the one being raped here. How, how does she feel? And I think that right. TV doesn't do a great job of showing how um, people recover from sexual assault. And another big thing that you get from people, I don't know if you guys get this too, but, oh, but, you know, Theon was raped and Theon was was mutilated and assaulted. I'm like, yes, he sure was. And they spent a ton of time on that. Mm-hmm. And Outlander has done this too. It has spent a ton of time on the, the, the recovery of male characters from rape, which is, you know, I, I applaud that on one level. But why is it that it's assumed that for women, it's like getting a manicure? Like, okay, well, that's <laughs> over now, and I'm done. Right, and, like, just uh, going to wash my hands of that whole thing. <laughs> it doesn't, totally. it doesn't, like, there are ways that TV is grappling with this, but it's like, until I think you really had people, like, break this open in a different way, there are male showrunners that have dealt with this pretty sensitively, but I really think Jessica Jones just changed the conversation for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, something I wanted to ask you in, about that note on uh, the Game of Thrones showrunners, you know, should be having more of a public conversation about this stuff is that uh, I feel like, you know, television criticism, especially on Twitter, like when viewers are upset with how women are being treated on television, like I feel like there's more of a transparent conversation. And something that was super refreshing mm-hmm. about your piece is that uh, you're actually talking to showrunners and they are as bad as mm-hmm. some of the viewers of the show. So I'm just interested in social media right now. How much do you think that has affected or how much do you think those doors are open for viewers to sort of voice their complaints and it gets back to the showrunners and then they change the content of the show? You know, I think it's I think it has sped up the conversation. And so I think generally I think that's a good thing. But I think can also be be tough for people to take because I think, you know, if you've been a TV writer for 20 years and you've been doing the same things for 20 or 25 years and then you go on Twitter and you interact with fans and you expect to generally have a positive experience and then the way that you've conceived of storytelling for many years in, the, in, in a way that has allowed you to rise in the profession and maybe even rise to the showrunner status, for a bunch of people on Twitter, you know, to tell you, like, oh, you're not right. I mean, it it can raise people's defenses, as we see all the time. You know, it can right. make people feel really attacked. I would say the conversation about rape on TV between 2005 and 2012, like, 
progressed slowly, but I would say in the last two or three or four years, that conversation has progressed much more rapidly. I mean, I guess an analogous thing that I would talk about is um, it's not the topic we're talking about here, just rape, but there was um, a really high-profile death of um, a lesbian character on a CW show in the spring. And that was, like, momentous. And the fans did sort of mobilize online, on Twitter, on Tumblr, and all, all sorts of places. And they created new groups and advocacy groups and started to pressure people to, like, think more about, you know, why are there aren't that many gay women on TV. Why are so many of them killed off? And mm -hmm. so that was a really necessary conversation that TV needed to have. But again, like I would say in the last 10 years, people had pointed it out at various times, but it never really kind of attained that critical mass. How do you decide when to step in as a critic? Like when are you like, okay, now it's like I got to weigh in on this, whether it's, you know, the killing off of lesbians on television or this specific um, uh, issue? Usually when I can't, I can't, I find that I can't stop thinking about it and like the piece is writing itself in my head. So I might as well put it in the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't always weigh in. I mean, I feel like I want to have something different to say. And like, that's why sometimes I have, like I wrote a lot about the rape scene with, um, Cersei and Jamie, um, that, Game of Thrones apparently didn't realize it was a rape scene, and that is a thing that happens more regularly mm -hmm. than I would like. Not a lot, but occasionally. You mentioned before uh, Brian Fuller uh, not even wanting to touch the subject of rape in Hannibal, um, mm -hmm. which is surprising because that show is completely filled with all sorts of gruesome <laughs> violence, and that was yeah, the one right? thing I didn't want to touch. Um, and I'm just curious what your take on that is. Showrunners who just don't even want to touch the subject matter at all. And if that helps the um, conversation or hurts the conversation. Yeah, I mean, that was a thing. I don't, I, I think, here's the thing. I, th I think sometimes you get pushback. And really the translation of that pushback is, why are you making me think harder about this? And, you know... Because is my answer, you know what I mean? Like, because you should. And so, um, you know, if people were to say, I am much more wary of putting a graphic rape in my story to motivate a male character, I would say, good, that's great. You should be super wary of that because I can list for you about 30 things that are pro probably going to be wrong with how you approach that or, <laughs> or, or I can list 30 pitfalls that, you would be, you would have to jump over to make that work. Um, I didn't really get into it in this story, but what you see a lot in the first episode of a, sh a TV show is a female character has been raped or assaulted or has been killed, and that's what motivates the man. And if I had a dollar for every time um, I've seen that on TV, especially early in the run of a show, I would be sitting, I would be calling you from my private island in the in the Caribbean. <laughs> so um, it happens a lot. And um, I think it's also really, really, it says something to me really false about men. Like, well, he has no emotion, like he's so, his, his emotions are covered by so much concrete that it takes his wife being raped to, make him feel things really Is <laughs> yeah, that, that's I really true. that seems wrong <laughs> right um I mean, right, like, just from a technical writing perspective, like, do yeah. do better. And hire women. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Hire, hire women and also listen to women because I, I hear from women writers all the time. And um, 
here's how a lot of writers' rooms work. There's eight or ten people. The majority of them are dudes. The majority of them are straight white dudes. And the people who are, the, you know, the men and women of color and or the woman or women, if there are more than one, are typically the junior people in the room. And so writers' rooms and TV shows are incredibly hierarchical. And as much as everyone's wearing jeans and T-shirts and it's fun and they're creative people and all this kind of stuff, I don't think people realize the extent to which it's like mad men. It's like there's the secretarial pool and then there's the creative execs. You know what I mean? Like, and that's, it's not those terms anymore, but it's incredibly hierarchical. And if you are the junior person in the room, um, and especially if you're outnumbered by guys or especially if you're outnumbered by white people, it's so hard to speak up unless the showrunner has created an environment in which there's no penalty for doing so in which that's encouraged. And so I cannot tell you, though, the number of women who have to put all of their political capital on the line or whatever whatever capital they've built up by being on that staff. And by the way, anyone can get fired at any time, so it's unstable for everybody. Um, so real. Many, many women <laughs> spend, spend their political capital on this. Right. And then they feel like maybe they they win that war. But I've, I just doing the story again, I heard from women who are like the stress of not knowing if people are going to retaliate overtly or co- covertly later for the things that you said and for the, the, the way that you put your foot down is incredibly stressful. So um, it's just it's it's hard. It's hard to fight these things. And it's really incumbent upon the people who are hiring the showrunners to make sure that they have a diverse collection of people who listen to their staff and who listen to executives above them too Mm -hmm. so basically women have to fix this along with everything else in the world Last week, uh, Teen Vogue posted this editorial by their weekend editor, uh, Lauren Duca, and it was titled, Donald Trump is Gaslighting America. And in the piece, she argues that Trump is basically using gaslighting techniques to manipulate America by normalizing his lies as if they were facts and how he accuses the media of unfair treatment. And the piece also urges readers to check very closely at where their media is coming from because of the fake news debacle. Um, and so this piece was very surprising to some people, and uh, many writers and editors on Twitter were applauding Teen Vogue for their politics, especially because a lot of people just, like, don't associate a magazine for teen girls with, like, being political. Or Mostly f- dudes on Twitter. Yeah, it was a lot of <laughs> Yeah, we should clarify. It was yeah. a lot of men on Twitter. And um, uh-huh. there were also people who were saying, like, but Teen Vogue for a while now as— uh, This writer, Julian Shepard, wrote in an op-ed for Jezebel, pointed out that they've been pretty great in the young feminist department uh, for a while now, especially after promoting uh, their editor-in-chief, Elaine Weltroth, uh, who is actually the first black editor-in-chief at Condé Nast, like, across the board. Um, Okay, Mm -hmm. yeah, but so the big lady problem is that people just still assume that teen girls don't care about this stuff um, and are still surprised that they would, or even when media would would cater to these concerns, which mm-hmm. is like, right, yeah. So yeah, that I'm interested in what you guys think about that and why people were so surprised or are still so surprised. Well, right, like, and we talked about this yesterday too, like this idea that um, 
like men men's magazines are just like about everything but yeah. women's magazines are about like women's stuff. yeah I mean you even saw it earlier in the year with Cosmo when they were did that incredible interview with Ivanka Trump and it was like oh oh Cosmo, actual reporting right. <laughs> but yeah Mo what what do you think about this yeah I mean um I think that I guess I'll start out by saying that before I wrote about tv or pop culture in general I wrote about music and coming up as a music critic any music that was that catered to women, especially young girls or teen girls or women, young women, um, it was denigrated, like consistently. Mm-hmm. Or if it appealed to um, LGBT audiences, uh, and you still see that now. You know, like Neil Young is a real musician. Duran Duran is stupid. You know, like the, anything that is pop or young or like, um, you know, can a young uh, pop singer actually be making amazing music? If he's female, yes, it's totally possible. You know, and I think that no matter how many women come along and basically just own that, like it, it just this keeps being a thing. You know, like Radiohead is real music. Is Beyonce really a genius? It's like, oh God, please totally. tell me. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so I think it's a, it's just a thing that I've seen. Um, I'm old, so I don't know if Lady Problems is allowed. Um, if I'm allowed to be on Lady Problems at, at this advanced age, but I'm 50. So um, uh, thank you for being generationally uh, representative here on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it's something I've seen all my life, and um, I basically have no time for it anymore. And I think that people who keep, keep on perpetuating those kind of dismissive assumptions and passing them off as jokes uh, – it's great that you have that amount of um, indifference and obliviousness at your disposal, but maybe don't advertise that. You right. know, people, anything that caters to young women is just viewed as ephemeral. And I've, I don't know if you guys encounter this. You probably do. It's like I can have a really in-depth conversation about the situation with the Russian hacking possibly of the election and also, I want to talk about what your favorite lipstick shade is, too. I can have both of those conversations at once. A hundred percent, yeah. Like, in the same half hour. And I, I've encountered this my entire life, where guys will be like, well, wait a minute. If you know who Rihanna is dating, you couldn't possibly talk about the Palestinian situation. Mm-hmm. It's like, I can do both. <laughs> right. Yeah, women really contain can. multitudes. Right. They, like, right. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, I am actually a music uh, writer, and I am 22, and before I worked at MTV News, I wrote for Rookie Magazine for a while, which is a website for teenage girls, and definitely used to get that— so awesome. (laughs) It definitely used to get that same patronizing, like, anytime we wrote about a band that, like, wasn't One Direction, it was, like— a bunch of male music nerds, like, their brains would just, like, explode. It was like, (laughs) this— 14 year old like knows who the clash is <laughs> and i mean that also happened too thinking about it now i remember when lord was on the cover of rolling stone she was wearing a cramps t-shirt and everyone was just like oh she could have never but yeah so yeah that reminded me of that but um yeah that's definitely something that i feel like i've gotten a lot yeah i mean i think any woman writer especially young as a young woman writer We've all had that experience of just being, like, completely patronized or condescended to, both within and outside of the industry. You know, like, I have family members or peers that will just, like, make me feel shitty for writing about pop culture. Like, I'm, you know, it's oh. just, it's just like, very insidious and constant. 
Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this whole this whole uh, Teen Vogue thing is really a microcosm of that problem where, like, people just really don't take – and it's actually this entire podcast is just sort of about, like, women being one di- thought of as one-dimensional, you know, in every possible sense. So, really, <laughs> it's just a societal yeah. – Yeah. The solution is just, you know, to keep – if you do work at a women's magazine, like, don't let the weird condescending – tone of, of critics or even people praising you like get to you and yeah. you can always have those articles about lip gloss and articles about yeah like, yeah I think it goes to like deeper things too though like um, my number one show of the year I just did all of my end of year list my number one show of the year is Jane the Virgin and I, I kind of encounter this a lot and we're in the realms that I travel in writing about TV and pop culture is that Um, If something is dark and grim and dour and people are often sad, that's viewed (laughs) as inherently serious and worthy of study. Mm -hmm. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Whereas something like Jane the Virgin that's about um, three Latina women living in Miami and is often aspirational and positive and funny, I think it's just as complicated and hard to make that show as it is to make a dark and grim show about uh, a well-to-do white man who has problems with women and problems with money and problems with alcohol or drugs. Like, I think, I don't think that that one is inherently harder to make, but it's like we sit there and look at certain shows as being, obviously that's, you know, if the creator of The Sopranos comes out with a new show, of course I want to watch that. I would watch the heck out of that. I would really want to know what he has to say as a creator, as a writer. But that's going to be viewed as inherently more worthy of regard, worthy of attention than whatever the, the next thing is that the, the, the creator, Jane the Virgin, does. I mean, you can go over to Metacritic, which has, like, number of reviews for something so... We just named Vinyl one of our worst shows of the year. It's a terrible, terrible TV yes. show that cost a huge amount of money. And yet there were like, I think I want to say 45 or 47 reviews of that. So that's how many people thought that they needed to weigh in on that. Whereas something like Sweet Vicious, which is about rape culture on college campuses by MTV. Yay. Yay. Little plug for you there. Um, <laughs> I think I want to say that was reviewed by six people mm-hmm. and, and and there are many factors that influence those things you know a big new high profile drama from hbo is going to just get more attention i totally get that but it just to me it speaks to the differing treatment of how how different tones are viewed how different subject matters are, are viewed how different protagonists are viewed and those are kind of like inherent assumptions that kind of undergird things until you like turn over the rock and look at it and think about it. Like, why is, why do people think that? You know, I, I guess I feel like I'm spending a lot of my critical career just trying to at least examine those assumptions and maybe continuing with them if I think that they're good assumptions to have, but at least trying to like pick them apart a little bit. Yeah. This is also exactly why we need a Sally Draper comedy TV yeah. show sequel. <laughs> Whoa. Please. Serious teen girl world in the 70s. Anyway, sorry. My brain just drifted into fantasy land. I'm so in. (laughs) Agreed, Mo. Do you agree to write about the show of Hazel Rice? (laughs) I would absolutely. It's already my number one show of that year. Amazing. Okay. More lady problems after this break.
Holly, our lovely coworker, uh, just popped into the studio. And she has a mysterious lady problem that she's going to share with us. I apologize if you guys have already been through this because I haven't been in the studio. But have you seen the fucking Hollywood Reporter today? Oh, I just wrote about it. Okay. This was one of those things where I was scrolling through Twitter and I saw a thing and I thought it was a parody. Like I thought it was a clickhole article. And I went and searched Hollywood Reporter's actual website because I was like, this is a really cleverly done parody. No, no, no. It's on their front page. Uh, the headline is Animation Roundtable, <laughs> Seth Rogen, and six more on how – it might as well be Seth Rogen and six more Seth Rogans. Seth's Rogen <laughs> on avoiding ethnic stereotypes and how to break the mold of princesses. Yep. It's Seth Rogen and six <laughs> other old white dudes. I it's know. not sarcastic. It was written by a woman. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't so even I guess, that. So I guess specifically my problem, ladies, is a medical problem, which is that this year has given our collective sense of situational irony a third degree burn <laughs> to the point where we don't register it anymore it, like i can't believe that they i, I almost, haven't read it yet i saw it and i i <laughs> backed Hazel, away it's so, on my oh, laptop holly is showing me the picture mo very, did you read this it's very large uh i saw a photo and the, the cut line that was with it like the headline that was with it and i thought Oh, no. I thought it was a fake. Yeah, it does seem fake, actually. Um, please allow me to read the lead, which begins, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> that, that Those are the first words of the story. What are you doing here? Veteran animator John Musker jokingly asked Seth Rogen as the masterminds behind some of this year's eclectic lineup of animated features began to assemble at the Line 204 stages in Hollywood to talk shop. That is one sentence, first of all. Um, okay, so one of the things that I thought was amazing was when uh, – so it's, yeah, it's six, six animators. Seven. Well, oh, six, Seth, well, six, six and Seth plus Rogen. Seth Rogen. Um, <sighs> So they talk about uh, how they had a challenge making Moana in terms of dealing with this culture that we were really outsiders to in a way. Uh, I knew something about the South Pacific just from a distance, reading books set there and seeing paintings and that sort of thing. But after I pitched the idea to the Disney animation creative chief, I started to read Polynesian mythology and discovered there was this character, Maui, who was bigger than life, blah, 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 blah. So we were forced to go to Tahiti and Samoa and Fiji. Like basically saying like they were outsiders in in Fiji and and Samoa and then we had they, to leave Burbank and go to Fiji right and then he goes this other guy says that's pretty good on Kung Fu Panda we just googled China that was as far as we could go yeah that's just one I mean Mo what are your what are your thoughts on on these on these six to seven um, white this men this is a problem I mean it's <laughs> you know the thing is I I I work for a competing trade publication so I have to step carefully here. Um, and here's the thing, we're not perfect either, uh, and our pages could have a more diverse array of writers, and I you know, hope we are working on that. So I, I certainly don't want to sit there and say, well, variety has never made a misstep of any kind, because that would be wrong. But this feels excessive. What, what's strange to me about this is that this went through many layers of decisions. Who will we invite? Who will come? How will we pose the photo? What, how, what, who will be there? Right. And everybody was okay with this lineup. And I just think that that's the problem. I and mean, we can sit there and talk about what the writer did or didn't do all day. But the fact of the matter is, is that people above her head approved this photo and this story and this roundtable and at higher levels. And that's something to think about because 
our, our industry, the media industries could be way more diverse and they're not. And we need to work on that. I'm curious if you have ever had an experience with like an all-male panel or you found yourself in a similar situation where you were like just surrounded by white men and not really sure what to do. Uh, yes. <laughs> There's been situations where I am like the, the lady on the panel and I get things mansplained to me. And, you know, I mean, we've all been there. It, it happens sometimes in meetings too. And the thing is um, – Here's what I think about stuff like that. Is the goal here that we're all going to be perfect? Is it, is it realistic to expect that? No. But it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier with the TV showrunners. I had a boss who essentially cut me off and in a meeting was dismissing my possible contributions to a story and kept saying, hey, what about this male writer? He could do the story. Multiple people said, no, he can't. How about Mo's idea? And he'd be like, no, how about this mail writer? So it was really like textbook dismissal and erasure and all that stuff. But afterwards, a female coworker and myself stayed behind in the meeting and said, okay, so here's how what you did was really not great, and here's how you can improve for the future. And you know what? He listened. Wow. He was like, oh, wow, I'm really sorry. I totally screwed up. I will try not to do that. And, of course, as you said earlier, what we all need is more work to do, like educating people, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I guess for me, I kind of feel like it's my job. <laughs> so it does get tiring. It does get exhausting. That's how uh, we always feel on Lady Problems. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Woohoo. Uplifting. Well, thank you for your Lady Problem, Holly. Thank, thank you, you for Holly. sharing. Make sure that you call and leave us a message with your lady problem. We're here to answer any query that you might have. You can give us a call at 205-677-5239. That's 205-677-LADY. Or you could tweet at us at at LadyProblemsPod, and we will be ready and waiting to answer your questions. Mo, thank you so much for being on the show and venting with us. We loved having you. I loved being on the show. Please have me back sometime. Oh, we would love <laughs> oh my it. gosh, of we course. Would love it. <laughs> Mo Ryan is the chief TV critic for Variety and the author of the recent article, The Progress and Pitfalls of Television's Treatment of Rape. You can find that at variety.com. Uh, Mo, do you want to share your Twitter handle as well? Yes, it's at Mo Ryan, M O R Y A N. And I rant about science fiction TV a lot <laughs> in a good way. So perfect. Check that out. <laughs> okay, and thank you, Hazel, for being here today. Thank you for having me, Rachel. And that was this week's Lady Problems, and we will see you guys next week. This episode of Lady Problems was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts.